and welcome to Elucidations, an unexpected philosophy podcast. I'm Matt Teichman. I'm Agnes Callard. And I'm Ben Callard. And today is our listener Q&A episode, which means that we'll be answering questions that you recorded and sent to us. So I guess we're about ready to get started, so let's listen to the first one. The problem of property. The phrase taxation is theft is probably well known. Because theft is only possible if someone takes another's property unlawfully, that principle always made me think of the question where the right of property comes from, especially because this phrase is often paired with the non-aggression principle, and the notion that if you start from first principles and you follow through, the conclusion should stand. But how should one proportion the claims of property? Can the first one to reach Mars claim it all? Should you, if you can, repay or return stolen property? Think not just of common theft, but of reparations or the land that the Romans stole from the Gauls, etc. Can property even make sense, let alone practically as above, but even conceptually? So I kind of want to just introduce two thoughts here about property and see where you guys want to go with this. So one of them is from Oliver Wendell Holmes, writing in 1897, he is sort of talking about like the foundations of property law and he's saying that it is rooted in a certain fact about human instinct, namely that we get attached to stuff that we hang around for a while. So here's the quote. It is in the nature of man's mind, a thing which you have enjoyed and used as your own for a long time, whether property or an opinion, takes root in your being and cannot be torn away without your resenting the act and trying to defend yourself however you came by it. The law can ask no better justification than the deepest instincts of man. So Holmes is saying, like, this is why we've got property law. It's just like someone hangs around something for a while and it's sort of, they sort of become convinced that it's part of them or who they are. And if you imagine like a little kid with a toy, they get so attached to those things. It's like, it's like this little inanimate object is like their best friend. It's nuts, right? Yeah, and if you think about just one step before getting attached to the toy, it would be like Hegel thought that like the first kind of property that you have is your own body, right? And it's like, why think your body is yours? It's like, well, whenever you've been around, it's been there. You know, you just, you've gotten really attached to it, um, to thinking of it as yours. And maybe that's it. Maybe that's all there is to the basic idea of property is you've just hung out with something forever, like as long as you can remember. I feel like if we took this really far, we like maybe we would start thinking of our property as like kind of an extension of our bodies if we have that relationship to our bodies. I don't know. That seems like a way to take that view to the extreme. I don't know what you guys think. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess I'm not convinced that Holmes is right about this. Um, the It's not exactly a cynical theory, but it's a kind of reductive theory, right? It's saying there's nothing more to the root idea of property than kind of bias almost. familiarity or yeah. something like that. And I'm not sure what would count as an argument for or against that view that he has. I also don't know what will count for and against the following view that I'm about to give. But, I, you know, why not think the root idea is the idea of earning? We sometimes earn something. We all have that concept. We all feel that we know when we've earned something, when it's due to us, when it's not due to somebody else. And, of course, many of the things that we earn are going to be things that are therefore near us and that we're familiar with. And so it might even entail or explain Holmes's intuition. But why not think that it starts with the idea of, I earned this thing. I, it's because of me that it exists. I, you know, And then that's the kind of basic idea of ownership or of property. And just to throw a related concept into the mix here, maybe um, also the idea 
that you made the thing seems to be absent here compared to maybe other accounts of where we get property rights from. It's just like I got attached to it, but there isn't this ownership that like kind of authorial ownership over it that results from having made it. I don't know if you're thinking of that as the same thing, but it seems intuitively related. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, look, there's a huge argument in the history of philosophy about all of this stuff. And Locke said that property is, you know, a matter of us mixing our labor with something. I think that maybe that's the right way of understanding Locke's idea is ultimately it's it, he's trying to think about this notion of earning and mixing labor is one way of thinking about that. But a lot of philosophers are, are sort of cynical about property. I've discovered that as they, they you know, totally. Liam Murphy and Thomas Nagel have that book, The Myth of Ownership, where they're basically saying, eh, this is a bunch of baloney. Like there's no – the ownership is going to be this incredibly reduced notion, right? It's basically the government deigns to give you some rights to something, and uh, you know. And maybe that's right. I mean I think property rights are it's sort of a nightmare. But yeah. what's wrong with just the earning idea? Like wh- what do you guys – The Hegel point. What's that? The Hegel point is what's wrong with it. If I if if we want to say that my body is my property, and I find it hard, like if you're gonna think you have any property, if you have any rights over any physical object in the entire world, you had better have some physical rights over your body. And if that's my property, clearly I didn't earn it. So that's a but problem. First of all, we're not talking about all rights. We're talking about a particular subclass of rights, namely property rights. And I guess for me, my body is not a paradigmatic example of things that I take to be my property, I agree with you that I have some rights over it, but I might not even remember to list my own body on my list of my property, right? I mean, it would be my sofa and my book, and you say, oh, and what about your body? That I guess I wouldn't tend to include that on that list. Well, this is the things I own. Like a lot of people think that you are your body. So if you are your body, then you can't really own your body, <laughs> maybe. I mean, I don't know. There might be a way to, to make that happen conceptually, yeah. but... But Ben doesn't think you're your body. No, I don't. Yeah. So. Right. Ah, I see. But I, <laughs> I still see. don't. For the reasons I was just giving, I I don't see why we should think that we own our bodies. Well, I mean, what relation do I stand to my body? By the way, I, I'm not sure you do own your body. I mean, legally, do you? I mean, maybe you do. But this is certainly a highly non-paradigmatic, non-canonical example. Well, Hegel's Con- contra point, Hegel. <laughs> I think Hegel's thought is like, y- you're right that it isn't the example that people would normally use. But it is the example that reveals the foundation of like what it is for you to sort of stake a material claim in the world. It's like your first material claim in the world. That in virtue of which you have a spatial location or something is the body. Mm-hmm. And if you think you can have a normative relation to make any other material claim, it's got to be parasitic on that material claim. Mm-hmm. So I'll just mention another problem, which I thought very, was very interesting that was mentioned by the listener in the question is this idea that, well, is it just like first come, first serve? So can I just traipse all over the globe and plant my flag everywhere and like dominate the whole globe that way because I got there first? There seems to be something intuitively morally problematic about that. So, you know, maybe there's this issue. There does seem to be this intuitive connection between being productive, making something, doing work, and like earning the right to own the thing or something like that on the one hand. But maybe if you're like super productive and you're a workaholic and you're just like, making things right and left and claiming things right and left, there's this, you know, concern that you could just, you know, it could be a mode of unfair domination or something. That's why personally for me, uh, this is a true dilemma and I don't know the answer to whether I think there are property rights. On the one hand, it seems undeniable that we develop attachments to things and that other people shouldn't get to do whatever they want with our things. On the other hand, there does seem to be this concern that you could just take over the world and call it yours or something. Hello, Matt. Professor Agnes Kellard and Professor Brent Kellard. Greetings from China. 
My name is Stephen Chen, alum of the college and former intern of the podcast. First, I just want to say thank you for doing this Q&A thing, and I think it's an amazing idea. My question is about how beginners should approach philosophy. Currently, my job is helping Chinese students apply to co- colleges in U.S., and because I was a philosophy major, most of the students assigned to me are interested in philosophy or humanities in general. But when I ask them how they learn philosophy, they show two extremes. Either they are struggling to read history or philosophy textbooks, or they claim they have been trying to read works of Kant or Heidegger, which in my opinion is quite a daunting task. So usually I recommend Stanford's Encyclopedia of Philosophy to them, but I really wonder how would you advise high school students to explore philosophy? It could be methodology, philosophers, books, or websites. I'm also curious, really, how important history of philosophy is for people who are not scholars of history of philosophy. And it would be lovely if you could also share your intellectual history in high school and how you approach philosophy. Again, thank you very much, and stay healthy. Uh, thanks, Stephen. I agree with you that uh, Kant and Heidegger are not the place to begin your philosophical studies. What? <laughs> I'm not sure they're the right place to end them either, but that's a, <laughs> and maybe for the same reasons. But anyway, I mean, the Stanford Encyclopedia, which you mentioned, is certainly a great resource, and poking around that can be a, a wonderful place to start. But uh, I feel like sometimes it's at least as hard as Kant. <laughs> Fair enough. That's true. Especially uh, the entries about Kant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would recommend uh, Thomas Nagel's book from the 70s, uh, Mortal Questions, as a great introduction. It's a, It covers justice and injustice and the nature of consciousness and the meaning of life and sex and death. So roughly speaking, if that doesn't excite you and trouble you philosophically, then probably nothing will. And it's very clear and simple and stuff, so that's a great place to, to start. Agnes, do you want to jump in here? You just call on me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I like your formal recommendation. Yeah. I'll make a methodological yeah. one, which is that I think you have to find people to talk philosophy with. So I think trying to set up a reading group, a discussion group, uh, it almost doesn't matter what the book is. The b- discussion group will motivate you to read it. And, you know, you'll just find that you have more questions to ask when there are other people there ready to listen to your questions. So that would be my number one suggestion is find some kind of peer group and talk philosophy with them or like ideally meeting in person. But there are other formats possible, too. And I would say that like often that works even if there isn't a quote unquote expert in the group. Like you can often bootstrap yourself into a pretty deep understanding of the material just by meeting regularly and like hashing through it and, you know, uh, talking to each other about it. To get to your question about uh, high school personal history, I didn't have much acquaintance with philosophy in high school. In fact, I think my only acquaintance was I read The Allegory of the Cave and wrote a very long and very unsound argument refuting Plato. So that that was my main thing. But I, I guess my main encounter with it was being interested in physics, going to physics club and being constantly told, well, that's not really a physics question. And so I felt sort of homeless for a long time. And then as soon as I got to college, I discovered or fully discovered that there's this subject where those questions were the questions I was, you know, I was allowed to ask. So that was definitely my, it, for me, it was college, not high school. I actually did start with Kant. I uh, I went to the Barnes. I was and, thinking about that <laughs> Barnes and Noble, and I read and I bought every book that was in the little philosophy section, and I read through them in chronological order. And when I got to Kant, I mean, I did keep going because I read Rawls and Nozick and stuff. But when I got to Kant, I just thought this is true. 
And I was actually confused why they continued philosophy after that, because I thought he'd gotten all the answers correct. And uh, I went around quoting Kant and kind of preaching Kant for a number of years until I got to college, and I learned that I was not the first person to really discover him, which was disappointing. Um, but I was doing high school debate, and so I had people to talk about it with and people to spout Kant at. That was crucial. I think I wouldn't have gotten so engaged with it if I hadn't had that. As for the history of philosophy, uh, yeah, I think it's really important. Um, and one way to think about it is these are the philosophical texts that have stood the test of time. <laughs> so they tend to be pretty good. Um, you know, if we've preserved them for a couple thousand years, like there's probably something in them. They, they're like a good bet. Um, but some of them are obscure and opaque. And so at least for your first thing, you know, you might want to choose something like a platonic dialogue or, you know, I think Ben's suggestion about um, Nagel's great too. I would also mention, I feel like people don't say this too much, that the exact same advice we've been giving about getting into a reading group and like working your way through a text, I would say that applies to the kind of formal mathy areas of philosophy as well. You know, get together with some friends, find a paper you think is interesting. Maybe you don't even understand why it's interesting. You just think the symbols look cool or something. You know, get out a whiteboard and try to like figure out what's going on. I think the same thing applies there. So in terms of my autobiography, it's extremely weird, so I won't, I guess, go into it that much. Um, so I got interested in philosophy in the course of doing a PhD in cinema studies, and I found that whenever I got stuck on a difficult problem in cinema studies, I had to turn to philosophers for help. So that's probably not going to be replicated by that many people. <laughs> Hi, Agnes, Ben, and Matt. I'm a big fan of the show, a long-time listener, first-time caller. My question is about who gets to call themselves a philosopher. In my life, most of the people I've met that call themselves philosophers are just due to like to talk a lot. But in academic philosophy, there's a lot more gatekeeping. Did you do a PhD? Are you employed as a professional philosopher in a philosophy department? Um, so I am curious about your thoughts about who gets to use that term. Is it everybody, everybody who likes to think? Or is it only certain people? Um, curious to hear your thoughts. When I was an undergrad here at the University of Chicago, one of my teachers said, like, don't call yourself a philosopher. I mean, like, Plato and Aristotle, most people are philosophers. You're someone who studies philosophy. Like, that's sort of who, you know, you are. And I, for a long time, I used that. I was like, I study philosophy. I teach philosophy. And It's like it's a spectator sport or something. Yeah. Like, it was then I, like, at a certain point, I was like, wait, can't you just be a philosopher and, like, not be that good at it? Isn't that like, I'm, I'm not saying I'm a good philosopher, but it is what I'm doing. Like, yeah, I'm doing the same thing Kant was doing in Aristotle and Plato. Like, I'm playing that game. And I think it's important, for me, it's important to be like, that's the game I'm in. I'm not in the game of, uh, like, Plato commentary. I mean, if I'm doing Plato commentary, it's because I think that's part of the game that Plato was in. So I think it is important to be able to, like, um, access that title <laughs> and say, like, this is what I'm doing. I'm trying to answer the deepest questions about the human experience. I'm trying to give my own answers to those questions. I think that's what makes me a philosopher. I would say that I, I'm curious to hear if you agree with this, and I think this is sort of in the spirit of what you just said, but I kind of take the general position that if somebody identifies as an ex, that's kind of good enough. You can start treating them as an ex, um, and that, you know, for any ex. So that applies to philosopher, that applies to musician. You know, even if they can't really play anything yet, they got a guitar and they're trying, you know, whatever, that's fine. They're a musician. So anyway, I don't know if you agree or disagree with that, but I'd be curious to hear your perspective. I'm a little worried about the self-identification criterion. At least we could cut thinner or thicker there, but I mean, mm -hmm. if somebody might 
think that philosopher meant philologist or philatelist or something. And so they might say, I'm a philosopher, but have a misapprehension about what the word meant. So Yeah, they completely had no clue what it was. <laughs> they thought it was like, you know, being a surgeon or something. Right. Uh, maybe we wouldn't want to say that that was sufficient. Right. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So but, I think it's going to have to be something like defeasibly sufficient, but or maybe sufficient only if the person has some level of understanding of what it means. I don't know. But then we get into this gatekeeping issue. So it gets tricky as we, once we fold that in. Yeah. On the gatekeeping issue, uh, Melina, I suspect that Agnes and Matt will both agree that having a PhD in philosophy is not a necessary condition on being a philosopher, nor is it a sufficient condition. And being a professor of philosophy is not a necessary condition, nor is it a sufficient condition. So that's speaking to the gatekeeping question. There's another question, and I'd be actually curious to hear in particular what Agnes had to say about this, whether, so to speak, if those are not necessary and sufficient conditions, is it that everybody's a philosopher? And I suspect that Agnes is inclined to answer that question, yes, and I'm inclined to answer that question, no. I don't think everybody's a philosopher. I think some people, there's an inclination side to that story, and there's a aptitude side to that story. And I've had students who had a great amount of philosophical aptitude, but the subject just left them cold and they stopped doing it and went off and did something else. And I've had students who were strongly drawn to it, but who didn't have any talent for it. I haven't yet said what for what. We have to say what the something is. But I'm inclined to say that not everybody is a philosopher, but you certainly shouldn't look only in philosophy departments to find philosophers. Anyway, that would be my answer to that question about, the, as it were, the domain or the scope of who is a philosopher? So first of all, I think you've conflated two questions, Ben, which is, is someone a philosopher and like, can they do philosophy or do they have philosophical ability or whatever? Because someone might have both the inclination and the talent, but just not do philosophy, right? So let me answer the question, is everyone a philosopher? I think no. Um, can everyone do philosophy? Yes. Should everyone do philosophy? Yes. So I think anyone who's not a philosopher is making a mistake because I think Philosophy is the examination of life, and the unexamined life is not worth living. So everyone should do philosophy. I agree with you about that. Everybody should be doing it. Right. And I, th <laughs> I independently think that everyone can do it. But that's like yet another view. Yeah. So I feel like this is compatible with what you both just said, but let me know if it isn't. So my view on this is um, that philosophy is kind of an unavoidable component of any human life. And one thing you could mean by I'm a philosopher, I'm not a philosopher, is like you focus on that. So like, you know, walking is a part of most human lives. Eating, digesting is a part of most human lives. But you wouldn't be like, oh, I'm a digester or I'm a walker or I'm a breather um, unless somehow you wanted to make that the focus of what you were, you know, of your self-conception. So the way I sort of hear it when somebody says I'm a philosopher, I'm not a philosopher is they've chosen to focus on this thing that every person does to some extent as part of their self-conception. That sounds right to me. Yeah, it sounds right to me too. I think everyone should focus on that, but that's a separate point. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Is it possible to prove rather than merely argue for an ought statement? If so, what's an example of a provable ought statement? Hi, Ariel. I think it's definitely possible to prove an ought statement. Let me give you an example. I'm going to prove the following ought statement. Someone ought to play less online pool. To have a proof, you need two things. You need to have it logically entailed by something else, and that something else has to be something that you know. So here's something that I know. I ought to play less online pool. By existential generalization, that entails that someone ought to play less online pool. So that's an example. I suspect that that does not get at what you really meant, but I just wanted to – there's a further question can we prove all ought statements? And the answer to that question, I think, is definitely no. But that's true also for all non-ought statements. 
So we have to start somewhere. We have to start with insight rather than proof. But that's true for every domain, whether it's normative or non-normative. And also might be worth distinguishing between proving an alt statement and discovering the truth of an alt statement. That is, the order, order of proof and the order of discovery are not the same. And so I suspect that what you're thinking of is a case where we move from an is to an ought, right? Can we start with a bunch of is claims and derive from them an ought claim? I actually just don't know the answer to that question. You know, Ben's example wasn't an example of that. But I definitely think you can start with a bunch of is claims and go from that and learn the truth of an ought claim, um, not through proof, but through discovery. So I like both of the answers you've given. I don't have that much to add. One thing I'll mention is um, there's a little bit of wiggle room maybe in what we mean by proof. So one thing people sometimes mean by proof is like a um, formal math derivation. And I think what Ben gave at the beginning was kind of close to that. It was in English, but it, it resembled the form of like a formal derivation you would give in a modal logic framework. You know, so is that what a proof is or is it just like, I don't know, like a convincing piece of evidence offered forth in a conversation? Is that proof? So I guess the only thing I have to add to this is that whether you can prove an ought statement may depend somewhat on what we're counting as evidence or proof. So if the bar for what counts as evidence is kind of low, then I think it's pretty easy to find examples of proving odd statements. If you, you know, basically just sort of support the odd statement, uh, that could be enough. But if you want to rigorously prove that it absolutely must be the case, that could be harder. But then that's, seems like that's just true of any statement. That's true of, of evidence in general, that depending on what your standards for the evidence are, you may or may not be able to provide sufficient evidence. Yeah, and let me add one, one last thing, which is um, I don't know that you can derive an is from an ought either, unless it would be an is about oughts. So it kind of seems like oughts and ises are pretty parallel in terms of proof. This is a question about social, social injustice and moral obligations. So let's assume the following two premises. Uh, one is a moral claim that the current social order is immensely unjust. And second is an empirical claim, a claim, but I think a reasonable one, that as a member of one of the more privileged groups in society, or in worldwide also, I'm a beneficiary of this injustice. So should I conclude that just being a generally decent person, uh, but at the same time devoting most of my time to personal goals, such, such as a fulfilling career, uh, raising a family, or nurturing uh, friendships, that is not enough for being a morally good person. And I'm vacillating between two answers. On the one hand, I think that we, social justice activism is good, but it can be over-demanding. We shouldn't feel guilty about pursuing ordinary go uh, personal goals. On the other hand, sometimes I think that even asking the question is illegitimate. It's hiding a desire to rationalize uh, complacency and finding a way to avoid guilt. Thank you. Uh, so there's a part of your question, Noam, which is just a question about the how demanding morality is. And that's the sort of well-known question in philosophy. You know, Peter Singer famously said that it's very, very, very demanding and that we have to give to marginal utility. That I take to be a very, very difficult question. I don't have anything particularly illuminating to say. I think it's just a hard question. But I wanted to focus on one part of what you said, which is somewhat separable from that larger question. You seem to imply that if we benefit from an injustice, then we have a special obligation with respect to remedying that injustice. And I don't think that's true. So just to give a dumb example, if my neighbor has a big awning and it casts shade on my garden and then somebody steals his awning, I've now benefited from an injustice. That act was unjust and I benefited from it. But I don't think I have any special obligations to catch the thief just because I benefited from the injustice. Ben, you're complicit in this theft. 
So it may be that I I am morally obligated to help catch the guy, but I'm not obligated because I benefited. That doesn't add anything to it. It may be that I have obligations just by being a human being. Right. It's like you're just as obligated as anybody else would be, but you're not more obligated because this happened. Right. So I think you are more obligated, but not necessarily um, because other people are being treated unjustly so much as because you're privileged. What I mean by that is, suppose what we mean by privilege is that you have a lot of like opportunities that other people wouldn't have. I think you have an obligation to make use of those opportunities in the kind of mode of you have an obligation to develop your talents and make use of your talents, right? And you could think of privilege as you just get a bunch of those things. Now, the turn for me in the question that sort of surprised me is when the social justice activism came in, because I think that you're obligated to take whatever talents you have and whatever benefits you've been given and whatever luck you have, you're obligated to take that and make the most of yourself and do something great with your life to whatever extent you can. I think sometimes that might mean social justice activism, but for a lot of us, that would be a misuse of our talents. Um, you know, like, and I think a lot of what you might call as personal growth, like career, like you shouldn't pick a career except if you think that career is going to do some good in the world um, and make a good use of your talents. So I think you do have very strong moral obligations to do the very best things with your life that you possibly can. And those are probably stronger if you're more privileged. But I don't know that I would focus those obligations necessarily in the area of social justice activism. I may be misinterpreting the question somewhat, but I thought I picked up on sort of the idea that like raising a family maybe wasn't making the best use of your talents. And that's a very complicated question. Exactly like what good does it do in the world if you put a lot of time into raising your family? But I think it's at least a very interesting question worth pursuing. And probably there's a good case to be made that it is an intrinsically viable activity both for you and for your community at large to do those kinds of things that were sort of it seems like we're being talked about as just sort of selfish or something. If nobody did it, there would be no more people. That's one reason it's valuable. <laughs> but I do think that um, I agree with you, Agnes, that uh, and with Kant, that we have an obligation to try to make the most of the things that we're given with our privileges and our talents. But I think that's as we're factoring off too much from Noam's question. Noam was interested not in what we should do with the things that we've been given, but what we should do with the things that we've been unjustly given or with unjust benefits. I was making a case that you don't have any added obligations because the benefits that you've gotten are from an injustice. Good. I guess that maybe we interpreted the question slightly differently. I think my thought was that he was saying that some people were unjustly deprived of these things, but not necessarily that it was unjust for you to have them. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So I don't know if this is necessarily the most popular opinion in the world, but I just thought I'd throw it out there that I'm very much not in favor of guilt. I think uh, guilt is um, an emotion that interferes with our ability to uh, make the correct moral decisions. And I also think it often interferes with our ability to come up with effective political policies. Now, of course, whether that's ultimately true is a big discussion, but I just thought I'd throw that out there um, since I think in certain circles it's sort of assumed that being guilty is the way you get yourself to do the right thing. Gil Harmon has a paper saying that nobody should be guilty. Like nobody is ever more – a good person is not made better by the capacity to feel guilt. Right on. <laughs> um, I don't think that's right though. <laughs> <laughs> I think guilt is a kind of pain you have at your own wrongdoing and it's important 
for your soul to be sensitive to that in kind of this for kind of the same reasons that it's important for your soul to be sensitive to sad things that happen to you or to bad things other people do to you. I agree with you. It often has very bad effects. You know, Martha Nussbaum notices this about anger and she's like, let's get rid of anger. Right. And Gil Harmon is like, let's get rid of guilt. Rudiger Bittner has a paper. Let's get rid of regret. Like, don't let anyone ever regret anything, right? Which is close to the guilt case. Yeah. Uh, Arnold Eisenberg has a paper. Let's get rid of shame. And like, I get why people want to get rid of these things because they're negative emotions and they are all like they're, they're sort of, they're sort of counterproductive when they show up in one's life. And when they show up at a political level, they're counterproductive. Hmm. But I think that our emotions are our kind of moral sensibility. And there's something really there that we're sensing, at least some of the time. And I wouldn't want to lose my sense faculty for that. Maybe if I can just kind of refine the previous thing I said a little bit, Um, because I think this is a response that I'm sympathetic to. I think maybe my worry is about guilt misfires, Mm. so about inaccurate guilt, which I think can be very dangerous. But maybe what you're bringing out here is that there's an important place for guilt when it's correct, when the thing you did really was wrong and you are really responsible for it. Yeah, and maybe there's something else that you said that strikes me as very right, which is, Feeling guilty is not doing anything in terms of penance or sometimes people seem to think that like just by feeling guilty, you've accomplished some kind of moral achievement. It's all better now. The wrong is undone. Right. So I agree with you on that one. It's the point of saying that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence if no one is ever willing to look at the evidence for extraordinary claims. I think you're asking an excellent question here. Yesterday in my Phil Perspectives class, uh, we were reading Hume on Miracles, and Hume gives this argument that you can't ever have any reason to think that a miracle report is true. And his argument is, roughly speaking, miracles by definition are things that have never happened before, and we're supposed to go on our experiences. And so by definition, all of the evidence is on the other side. And so by definition, you're irrational in believing a miracle claim. And my students were very suspicious of this argument, and I am too. I They detected a, a real problem here sort of problem of dogmatism. Roughly speaking, you're holding fixed your current evidence set and you're saying, well, given that I've never seen X happen before, I ought not to take in uh, new evidence. It's related to Kripke's dogmatism paradox, so it's not quite the same. And I just think you're, you're right here. Um, take an actual case. Like, think about how you actually react. Suppose you, you know, meet somebody on the bus and they start telling you some extraordinary claim that aliens have landed and some of them have, have assumed human form and you might be tempted to say something like, well, that requires extraordinary evidence. But then what we all actually do is ignore the guy. We say he's a crackpot or he's a crank or something. And so we stop listening to him. And maybe it's okay to do that, though we would need an argument why it's okay to do that. But in any event, we should stop saying extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence if we don't listen to the extraordinary evidence. That is, suppose the guy says, oh, I have some evidence that this thing with the aliens has happened. We're not going to listen to it. So I think you're right. You're, you're putting your finger on a, a phenomenon that's very, very common, and I, I agree with you. It's problematic. So one question I have about this is that uh, it seems to me sometimes we do listen to extraordinary evidence for extraordinary claims. So, for example, in episode 113 of Elucidations, where we talked to Tom Pashby about quantum mechanics, I really can't think of any claim more extraordinary than basically any claim made in quantum mechanics. Uh, It's absolutely mind-bending, doesn't even seem to make any logical sense, and yet it's the best available description of empirical facts about the physical world that we have. And in that case, because it seems to fit the facts so well, I was more inclined to try to understand what the evidence for it is. And you know, it only happened in audio form, but Tom took these polarization filters out and performed one of the experiments that you do with polarization filters. And 
without going into the details of that, he did it before my eyes. And I was like, what? How, what, what, how did that even happen? How did the light cut through when you turn the middle filter around? That's crazy. Um, so I would submit that maybe as an example of sometimes we are willing to listen to evidence for extraordinary claims. But maybe that actually there's a lesson there, which is that extraordinary claims require not only extraordinary evidence, but a kind of extraordinary presentation. Because the thing is, first of all, you didn't listen to just anyone. You listened to Tom, who knows stuff, right? And you know that. Yeah, he does know a lot of stuff. It's true. <laughs> and like we have defenses, I think, built up against taking in, even taking in the evidence. But those defenses can be worn down. Um, they can be worn down by an authority figure, or they can be worn down by just people kind of presenting us with a little bit of the evidence and be like, you're probably thinking this. And then they can sort of finesse it. And so yeah. it may be that when you're making an extraordinary claim, you have to apply some finesse in how you present the evidence in order to overcome people's defenses. That might not be a bad thing that that high bar is required. So extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence plus really well-executed rhetoric. <laughs> but if I can speak to that very last thing that you said, Agnes, you might take what you just said as true, at least descriptively. People, as you say, do have their guard up. Yeah. And then certain kinds of finesse might get people to lower their guard. But then at the end, you said, and that might not be a bad thing. But why isn't it a bad thing that we have our guard up? Why not take the principle, well, if the claim is extraordinary, the evidence needs to be extraordinary, and have that be our principle? Why do we need this? If we were fully rational, wouldn't we just say, okay, you've said this strange thing. Now you're going to need to give me some extraordinary evidence. I think because there's a kind of like economics of attention allocation problem, <laughs> which is that it just might take a fair bit of time to get through the extraordinary evidence and you have to decide whether to allocate attention to it or not. And so you need to be meta persuaded to even pay attention. Okay, good. Hello, this is Mark Cohen with my listener question. When I was a kid, I was fascinated with driving. Uh, whenever my parents drove me somewhere, it was just nonstop questions. Uh, one day I remember asking my mom about the speed limit sign. Um, I must've been about six years old at the time. And she explained that it signifies a law that says that you have to drive this many miles per hour or else you're breaking the law. And, you know, you might get pulled over by a police officer and given a ticket. Uh, and right as she explained that we blew past a couple cars in the left lane. And I turned to her and said, mom, why were we going so much faster than those cars? Were we going the speed limit and they were going really slowly? And she said, oh, no, I'm going like 75 miles per hour. And this was a 65 mile per hour zone, as we had just learned from the sign that I asked her about. And I immediately lost my mind because my mother that I had heretofore loved and admired was suddenly a criminal and I just couldn't wrap my little six-year-old brain around that. Um, she calmed me down and explained, oh, you know, if you're going within like 10 miles per hour of the speed limit, you're, you know, you probably won't get pulled over. Um, and, you know, even if you do, you'll just, you know, you'll pay a fine, maybe you get a point on your license. But what has stuck with me since I was a kid is this this conflict over what the speed limit means and how weird it is that speeding by a little bit, you know, obviously not reckless driving, but just speeding by like, say, five miles per hour is this totally benign thing that nobody cares about, but nonetheless is breaking the law. And so I, I just I would love to hear a proper philosophical discussion around what this kind of implicit contract 
means, how, how we're to make sense of this um, kind of unspoken interpretation of the law uh, and, and what it means to us as governed citizens. Uh, so yeah, I, I hope this makes it onto the podcast. I would love to hear it discussed. Thanks. So I think a good starting point for attacking this question is to advert to the immortal wisdom of one of the 21st century's great philosophers, Brad Pitt. Now, in this context, Brad Pitt is talking about the fact that people online, I think it's probably mostly men, but anyway, people online in their online dating profiles typically lie about how much they make in order to seem more oppressive. So that's the context for that, and uh, here's the quote. Everyone lies online. In fact, readers expect you to lie. If you don't, they'll think you make less than you actually do. So the only way to tell the truth is to lie. I think Brad Pitt is onto something important here. And uh, there's a little terminology, but I think it's, it, I'm just going to introduce it because I think it's fun, from the literature and dynamic epistemic logic. And uh, they, they draw this distinction between what they call honesty and what they call sincerity. And these are like special meanings they just coined for the purpose of the discussion. So the idea is that being sincere is saying what you believe to be true. But being honest is being as truthful as your interlocutor expects you to be. So what Brad Pitt is saying here is that because everyone expects you to be misleading, everyone expects you to exaggerate about how much you make, the only way to actually convey the correct information to them is to play into that expectation that you're going to exaggerate a bit and do it. So it's an example of insincere honesty. I think something like that might be happening with the speed limit. Like the expectation is that we exaggerate a bit, uh, like how low the speed limit is. In fact, the speed limit is 75, but the posted speed limit is 65. And as long as everybody understands that we're going to agree to lie a little bit about what the speed limit is, then that's the convention. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? I, can I just offer a totally different framework? Please. <laughs> um, so I think that there's a distinction between like a price and a sanction, right? So a price means you pay a certain amount of money to be allowed to do something. And a sanction means like there's some kind of penalty that's imposed on you for doing what's forbidden, okay? So when you want to park somewhere, you pay a fee to park there, right? That's like the price. But a sanction would be you get a parking ticket because you didn't park where you were supposed to. Mm. Um, and now you could just view the parking ticket as a price, right? And just be like, it's okay, I'm okay with the ticket, I'm gonna park here and then I'll take the ticket. And I think that there's a kind of fuzzy borderline between prices and sanctions at the level of small sanctions. So I think it's probably okay to view a parking ticket as just a price you're gonna pay for parking somewhere if you really wanted to park there. And I think similarly with speeding, right, technically it's a sanction, right, you've broken the law if you speed a bit, but as this person said, her mom's like, yeah, you pay a little bit of a fine, whatever. She's viewing that as a price, I think. And so I think the reason why she thinks it's okay is exactly because she's viewing it as a price rather than a sanction. And and so she's not seeing herself as breaking a rule and getting punished for it. She's just seeing herself as paying, but you know, with a risk or whatever, in order to do something she wants to do. And I'll just cite there was this interesting, I think it was an Israeli study where they, you know, instituted a payment system if you showed up late to pick up your kid, and like a lot more people would show up late. And I think that's because that turned it into a price rather than a sanction. Nobody wanted to violate the sanction, but they were okay paying the price. I think there are circumstances that can turn it back into a sanction, though. So 
suppose that you're driving as his mother was over the speed limit. And suppose that a child runs out into the road and she slams on the brakes, but there isn't enough time and the kid gets hit and killed. And suppose that it emerges that had she been driving at the speed limit, the kid wouldn't have been killed. We have three options at that point, it seems to me. We can say there's moral luck. That is to say, we can say that she's guilty, though, had a child not run out into the road, she wouldn't have been guilty, right? But it's it wasn't up to her whether a child ran out on the road. The second is what that reveals is that she ought not have been riding over the speed limit. And so to speak, it's not a matter of luck. It, what it reveals is that she was doing something wrong all along, whether a child ran out or not. And the third option is to say, no, this is misplaced guilt. We were talking about guilt with respect to an earlier question. And that, so to speak, she shouldn't feel any more or less guilty than a person who was driving at the speed limit would if they hit the child. But in any event, I think it's not clear to me that the first or second answers aren't right. Hmm. Hi, I'm Mike. Um, when I write stuff or when I say stuff, I'm always fixated on saying true things. I think a lot of people, you know, are like that. However, I increasingly think that fixating only on ironclad, verifiably true things can be a limitation that reproduces orthodoxy. For example, I grew up thinking that Emily Dickinson and Isaac Newton were asexual at best and failures in love at worst. But now I'm aware of letters that they wrote, which demonstrate that they may, you know, very well have been gay. Uh, it's not like we can ask them, so we can't, you know, big air quotes, prove it. And so that conclusion may be big air quotes wrong. But I also think it's a valuable and likely enough alternative that I think I can believe it, you know, as far as it goes. Uh, do you think objective truth about historical events is intrinsically valuable and is something that should be sought out even when shifting the truth doesn't change the lives that we're living? Thanks. So I think you should stay fixated on the truth. And I take the case that you're describing to be a success case rather than a failure case. That is, your thought is that in this case, being fixated on the truth, I think you said it would you know, be a limitation that would perpetuate orthodoxy or something like that. But it seems to me what happened was we used to have a certain base of evidence. And on that evidence, it was reasonable to assume that they were asexual or whatever. And then what happened is we got some more evidence. And now it seems to me what you ought to think is, as you just said, they may very well have been gay. Why not leave it there? Why not leave it where you yourself seem to go? You seem to want to say, let me go beyond what the evidence is telling me, which is that I now have reason to think that it's very possible they were gay. And I should actually believe they were gay. Why do that? And in any event, why is it that not doing that is somehow perpetuating orthodoxy? It, this just seems to me a good case of revising your how you're thinking in the light of the evidence. I would draw a similar moral and I would say, um, you know, imagine more and more evidence of that sort keeps pouring in. At a certain point, I think you are going to conclude that they were gay. If you just, you know, uncover tons of written testimony from all sorts of independent sources of, you know, whatever, Emily Dickinson living uh, with a same-sex partner or whatever – if you encounter many different types of historical evidence, at a certain point, you're probably going to have to conclude that that was the case. And um, as you rightly point out, this is true of any historical fact. We would like to have a time machine to go back and actually just like observe what happened. But barring that, we have to make use of other kinds of evidence. So let me, let me play devil's advocate here and just Yes, ask, please do. Play Michael Dummett, who didn't believe in uh, facts about the past. <laughs> I, I believe in facts about the past. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not that, yeah. that much of a devil. But – you guys keep talking about this evidence. And I, well, I want to know, where's this fountain of evidence coming from that's kind of like rushing in your face? Like, oh, I got I to gotta move. I got to respond to the evidence. Like, yeah, but 
you know, the real question is what kind of evidence are we running into, right? And I think that people, you know, acquire new evidence by opening an inquiry, right, into something and by, you know, entertaining a new possibility and probably entertaining it beyond the level that they already have evidence for um, to ground the truth of the claim and be like, wait, what if they were gay? And where that that kind of obsesses them and they kind of hunt for that. They're not hunting for evidence either way. They're really hunting for evidence that they were gay. It's just like some, probably occurred to someone like, wait, you know, these people are supposedly asexual, but that is how gay people would have looked back then. So let me look into this, right? And they're looking into the truth of something and they're searching for it and their search might come up empty. But our ability to sort of sit back and respond to the evidence might be parasitic on the ability of these people who are, they are, in fact, I think, questioning established norms and orthodoxy. And they're even, in some sense, putting their own rationality on the line in a certain way by kind of jumping in at the deep end of a claim and then, like, seeing if they're able to swim. Yeah, it's a really good point, right? Like, evidence doesn't just walk in front of you while you're sitting there with your popcorn in the movie seat, you know, waiting for it to come along. Um, you know, you have to go out and find it. And often, what are you going out and looking for evidence on the basis of? Maybe often it's just a hunch. But, yeah, there are very interesting questions here about, like, when should we versus when shouldn't we listen to our hunches? But I think that's a really nice point, right? It's like an active process of gathering evidence. I think it's certainly an active process, but it seems to me that the motives behind that search, there are various sorts of motives, and not all of those motives have to do with dumping your fixation on the truth. It could be, for example, that you hope that they were gay. It could be a desire rather than a belief. That could explain why you're Wouldn't doing it. Wouldn't it be cool if it turned out gay? Right. Wouldn't it be cool? Exactly. But the point is that doesn't involve us relaxing our commitment to the truth. What it, it simply is a desire that we have. And in terms of truth, it's no worse for that. Yeah, we really need a devil's advocate here because I think we're a room full of realists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, to me, the fact that we're even interested in this kind of presupposes we think that there's a fact to be discovered. I guess I think that there's a difference between being interested in the truth and being interested in avoiding the false. And, you know, it, it could be like if there's some truth about their sexuality, it's like you want to have it. And you're best off, if you want to have that, you're best off believing something about their sexuality. You have no chance to getting the truth unless you believe something, right? And so I think what the person who's sort of jumping in at the deep end is doing is they're like kind of on the side of the truth rather than avoiding the false. They're not being, they're, they're being a little bit less careful than the rest of us. And that is what can possibly lead them to being a kind of font of evidence for us. I think that concludes our listener Q&A episode. I want to thank everybody for all the questions. I was absolutely blown away by how just knock your socks off awesome all the questions were. I was really just – I found them incredibly stimulating and fun. So thank you, listeners, and uh, maybe we'll do this again sometime. And if so, I look forward to uh, hearing from you. And thanks very much as well to the Callards for providing complimentary philosophical awesomeness. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> thanks. The Elucidations blog has moved. We are now located at elucidations.now.sh. On the blog, you can find our full back catalog of previous episodes. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out on Twitter at, at elucidationspod. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>